Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. He's breaking it down, so you don't have to. This is Breaking It Down with Frank McKay on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here with a terrific author. He's got several books out. The book on the Unabomber was absolutely terrific. And his latest is called A Brotherhood Betrayed. The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc. Michael Cannell is a former editor over at the New York Times, and he's got a resume a mile long. I won't bore you with all of that. Let's get right to Michael Cannell. Michael, how are you? Hey, how are you? Doing well. And listen, congratulations. The book is getting rave reviews. And a terrific story that seemingly never gets old, but it is a different angle. And from what I'm hearing from folks who know their stuff, this is the best account of murdering quote that we've had. If you can, give us a little background. Yeah, I appreciate your saying that. Um, yeah, this is primarily the story of a man named Abe Reles. His, his nickname was Kid Twist. And Kid Twist was not one of those um, famous mafia names. He's not a household name like Lucky Luciano or Bugsy Siegel. Um, Abe Reles was just a kind of a notch or two below them in the hierarchy of the mob. And his job was to kill all the informants. He was the head of an organization that came to be known as Murder, Inc. And um, we're talking about the 1930s. This was a time when um, organized crime became really organized. And part of their plan was to set up this assassination squad that would um, take care of anybody who was going to testify against them from New York to Los Angeles. They, Abe Rella is responsible for killing hundreds, hundreds of people. And then, and then there's a twist. And the twist is that Abe Rella is the man who would spend his entire adult life killing informants, and he became the biggest informant of all. Wow. It's fascinating. The subject is fascinating. The angle that you're going down there is one that really isn't... I've seen Rellas' name. I've never even heard it spoken out loud, so I didn't even know the pronunciation of Rellas. But this is someone who really should be a household name, at least among the folks that are following You know this type of activity, mob activity and whatever. He's a major player. Before we go on, can you kind of differentiate between either the style or the technique, the, the methodology of Murder, Inc., and some of the, let's say, the Italian mobs or some of the other mobs out there that would be their contemporaries? Yeah, I mean, part of what I didn't say about, about Abe Rellas was that he was a Jewish mobster. So this was a time when, for the first time, the Jewish mob and the Italian mob um, was working together. And there's kind of a a long and interesting story about how that happened. It was the second generation of mobsters uh, in America that was really came together across across ethnic lines. And this this was a time when um, when the mob was 
you know, they're trying to run the mafia like a really efficient corporation. They were trying to run it like, like General Motors. And so, um, you know, this, this was not um, about personal vendettas or murders of passion. This was business. They were just really about making money and they were trying to protect themselves. So Murder Inc. really ran like, like a corporation. And when um, the mob in Detroit or Los Angeles or Miami had reason to believe that one of their own soldiers was defecting, talking to the police, they dispatched one of Abe Rellis's men from Brooklyn and it was really almost like middle management. They would pack a bag with a with a set of clothes and and a, of course a gun or a or a, a clothesline, and they would fly to one of these cities. They would do their job, and then they would fly back and they would read about the murder in the next day's newspaper. So this was this was very cold and calculating and efficient. Not at all. You know, not at all what you might see in the movies where people are are killing each other out of jealousy or out of passion. Michael Cannell is the voice that you're hearing if you're just turning on your radios a little late or just tuning into us a little late. Michael Cannell is a wonderful author. His latest is one, it's a must-get for everyone, A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc., and we're talking about Kid Twist there, which is interesting. But a name like Kid Twist, you figured, would just roll off of everyone's tongue. And it's kind of made for the movie, a, a name like that. But again, Frank McKay here with Michael. Michael, the prosecution of Murder Incorporated almost produced a president, if you think about it, right? I mean, Thomas Dewey was launched by that trial and by that investigation and everything else. Correct me if I'm wrong. It almost launched Dewey, well, it's certainly to the governorship and then that famous paper that Harry Truman held up, Dewey wins. Yeah. Right? You know, a lot of that had to do with a lot of Thomas Dewey's career was launched by Murder Incorporated. Yeah, it seems to be a tried and true way for people to become successful politicians is to um, work as a prosecutor that busts the mob. It worked for Rudy Giuliani um, for a while, um, and it and it worked for it worked for Thomas Dewey. I mean, he he ran. You know, his his name is kind of a punchline now because of that that famous photo that you mentioned, where Harry Truman is holding up the newspaper. Um, but Thomas Dewey was he was sort of a a a um, a phenomenon. He was a Wunderkin, he was a prosecutor in his 30s who was assigned the job as a special prosecutor to bust the mob in New York at a time when the mob really just controlled almost everything in New York. Um, nobody thought he would be able to do it. He was practically a kid, and and he did. And he he did it in part by focusing on prostitution. So he raided the brothels and he convinced a bunch of the prostitutes to testify against the the mob figures who controlled prostitution and that was the beginning of the end for for many of these um for many of these mob figures and then Dewey kind of disappears from the scene he goes on to run for governor of New York and 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 later president and his place as as the lead prosecutor is 
taken by a man named William O'Dwyer, who was the Brooklyn district attorney, could not have been more different than Dewey. But he also succeeded in in sending uh, many of these mob figures either to jail or to the electric chair. Who historically gets the credit for flipping Abe Rellis and is the person who gets that credit, according to you and the research that you've done, is it justifiable to give the person who's getting the most credit historically the proper lion's share of it when it comes to flipping Kid Twist? Yeah, that credit goes to William O'Dwyer, who arrived as an Irish immigrant, an almost penniless Irish immigrant uh, in his in his uh, teens and worked his way up from from uh, policeman to lawyer to judge and then district attorney. He came up through the streets that the that the mob controlled and he was a very effective district attorney. He succeeded in flipping Abe Reles um, and and successfully uh, um, sent four of Abe Reles's lieutenants to the electric chair at Sing Sing. And they were poised to have Abe Reles testify against Lepke Bookalter, one of the really big bosses. And the night before Reles was to have testified in court, he went out the window of the hotel in Coney Island where he was being kept under layers of police guard, and he died. And the question then became, who killed Abe Reles? And that's really one of the enduring mysteries of the mob is how did Abe, Abe Reles die? Who, everybody knew that the mob wanted to kill him because he was going to testify against the big bosses. But there is reason to believe that the police may have thrown him out the window or, and this sounds incredible, but it's true, it's possible that William O'Dwyer, the district attorney, may have had something to do with it. Wow. Because remember that Abe Reles knew about all of the police corruption. He knew about the police, the judges, and the district attorneys that were getting paid off by the mob. And so later, when William O'Dwyer was mayor of New York, people started to ask questions about this. He very abruptly resigned as mayor of New York and became the ambassador to Mexico, where he was somewhat out of reach of these of these questions. So very suspicious. Now he was appointed by Truman or Eisenhower. Who appointed? Correct. Him? He was appointed by Harry Truman, who would have been his political ally. So this was all worked out in advance. When questions came up about whether O'Dwyer was involved in throwing. Abe Reles out the window of the Half Moon Hotel in Coney Island. Uh, O'Dwyer, like I say, very abruptly resigned, and Truman sent him to Mexico. Amazing. Just an amazing <laughs> twist in the story. And this is why everyone uh, listening, you must get this book, A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder Incorporated. And Michael Cannell is the author of that wonderful book and others. But this is the book we're concentrating on. Just absolutely riveting. Just listening to you, Michael. Just absolutely riveting. The book is a must-get, everyone. Frank McKay here with Michael. Let me uh, go back to O'Dwyer. Did O'Dwyer have any deathbed confessions that we should know about? Did he have any 
chit-chat with folks that he was close to. Is there anything close to an admission or anything that would lead us to believe that he was, in fact, responsible for throwing, you know, relas out that window? Yeah, no, really interesting question. Uh, no, there isn't. The answer to that is no. He never confessed anything. But the rea- the truth is, and, and he may not have been involved, the truth is that the men around him um, were were convicted of various forms of of corruption. And it may be that while O'Dwyer himself was not taking bribes, um, it, we know for a fact that the people close to him were. And so it may be it may be that that um, he was just simply kind of guilty by association because there was corruption around him and in his own office. But he may not himself have taken any any payola. Um, remember that he came up through the streets at a time when um, bribing the police was practically universal, particularly in Brooklyn, where he lived lived and worked. And um, you know, not just among the cops, like I say, but also among among the judges. So it was all around him in any case. Uh, focusing on Arellas a little bit more here, can you pinpoint who exactly his rabbi, godfather, who was the person that really took Arellas under their wing originally and moved them through the process and took them under his wing? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I mean, what happened is that Abe Reles, a Jewish kid from the neighborhood of Brownsville, Brooklyn. Brownsville, by the way, would have been the toughest neighborhood in all of America at that time, maybe the toughest neighborhood ever. Um, Reles punched his way up, up, up the ranks of the, of the, of the gangs in, in Brooklyn, and um, he was done wrong by his bosses the three Shapiro brothers who really controlled that part of Brooklyn. And he wanted to overthrow uh, the Shapiro brothers and take their place. And in order to do that, he needed the permission of Albert Anastasia, who was the top mob figure in all of Brooklyn, particularly along the the dangerous docklands of, of Brooklyn. Anastasia gave his permission um, Relez recruited some Italians from the adjacent neighborhood, and that gave him the muscle to kill off the Shapiro brothers one by one. And then Relez was the top guy in his area. And and Anastasia noticed this. Lepke Bookalter, who was one of the top figures uh, in the mob, noticed this. And Lucky Luciano noticed this. And so they decided that that Abe Reles was going to be their guy to run what 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 the press called Murder Inc. They didn't call it Murder Inc. They called it the combination because it was half Jewish, half Italian. The press called it Murder Inc. But that that name is that's the name that stuck. Yeah, been brutal. Talk about Reles 
as a guy who punched his way to the top, I mean, it wasn't an easy thing to do at that point, especially coming from where he is. It's impressive, you know, looking from the outside even many years later, right? what are we, 70 years later or something along those lines or longer to watch what to read about it. And again, the best place to read about it, folks, is in A Brotherhood Betrayed, the man behind The Rise and Fall of Murder Incorporated. It sounds like that is Abe Reles. That's basically, right, that's your poster child. That's who you're talking about when you said the man behind the Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc.? Yeah, I mean, that's right. Abe Reles was the guy who was the head, really, the, he was the field general of, of Murder, Inc. And when he, when he uh, decided that he was going to um, flip, change teams, when he decided that he was going to flip, as they used to say, um, you know, that's really what, what changed everything. Um, you know, then, then, then the, for the first time, the district attorneys felt like they could bust the mob when they had Abrellas on their side. Um, he, he was responsible for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of murders by one count as many as a thousand. I don't, I don't know that it was that many, but it was hundreds anyway. And he told the district attorneys about, you know, about all of them, one after another. And he had a strange kind of cinematic memory, almost a kind of freakish memory for these murders. And so he could he could recall them in incredible detail. How different is your reality now that you've done the book and you did all the research on Reles and everyone else around him. How is that compared to what your expectation or what your thought of his before you did any of this research for this new book? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think for most of us, we think about the mafia. We think about something like The Godfather. You know, but The Godfather, you know, The Godfather really kind of created the idea of the mafia in the public imagination. But the truth is that Abe Reles and his crew, they were far more vicious than what you would see in The Godfather. They were, they were sadists, and um, they had imaginative, creative ways of killing people, and they enjoyed the killing. I mean, Reles' closest associates, his lieutenants, anytime there was an assignment to kill somebody, they, they threw their hands in the air. They wanted to do the killing and they enjoyed it and they laughed during the actual process of the killing and they they distributed bodies everywhere i mean they left them in abandoned cars in brooklyn they buried them alive they burned them and left the corpses out in the fields they buried through them in lakes in upstate new york they were just what they did goes way beyond what you might see in a movie like the godfather absolutely fascinating. The whole subject to me is the way you capture it. Sticking again with Abe Rellas, is there anyone in particular that he showed total devotion to or total loyalty to? Or was once he flipped, was everything off the table? Was there anyone that you found that he was out to protect even once he was a government informant? Once he flipped, he protected nobody but himself and his family. And the truth is that he probably flipped simply to protect his family. Abe Reles himself believed that he was dying. For some months, he had been spitting up blood. And while he sat in jail, he would fill up one drinking glass after another with, with blood. He would cough it up and spit it up. He thought he had cancer. 
he, as it turns out, he did not have cancer, but he believed that he was one way or another, he was going to die. Either the mob was going to kill him for flipping or he was going to die of cancer. So part of the reason that he went to the district attorney really was to try to make a deal with them that would protect his family. The witness protection program didn't exist at that time, but he essentially wanted the district attorneys to take care of his family, find a safe place for them and uh, and and protect them. So that's what he was about right there at the end of his life. Let me remind folks of who you're listening to. Michael Connell is our very special guest, and he is the author of several books and a former editor over at the New York Times. And his latest is a must-get, A Brotherhood Betrayed, the man behind the rise and fall of Murder Incorporated, Frank McKay here, reminding everyone who may have stepped away, you're listening to Breaking It Down. And once again, I'll remind you, Michael Connell's book is A Brotherhood Betrayed, the man behind the rise and fall of Murder Incorporated. You can get it at anywhere they sell great books, and that's Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles and everywhere else. And before Michael goes, we'll, we'll ask for any specifics. Can uh, I ask you about Relez's the relationship or the deal that he made with the feds, and you got to pardon my ignorance on this, was that almost a start of something like the witness protection when you say that he needed them to remove his family, you know, to protect his family? Was that a departure from anything that was going on prior to this in the mob prosecutions? Was that different than anything that was there before, or was there always that case with informants? Or is he the first major informant that we could think of? Yeah, I don't know that we would call him the first big one, but he was certainly the biggest, and the biggest by far. And the, um, the the district attorneys had not figured out yet how to bust the mob. Up until Abe Reles flipped, the mob really ruled. I mean, they, they had made so much money uh, during Prohibition. They were just awash in money. And so it was very easy for them to pay off not just the police, but... The judges, and so they were they were like in total control, not just of the city government, but also industry, the garment district, the waterfront, the docks. I mean, the the, the mafia really ruled with an iron with an iron grip on on New York and many many other cities. So nobody, you know, this was the this was kind of new territory when um, Thomas Dewey and then and then later William O'Dwyer were trying to bring down the mob. So nobody nobody had really thought to have something like the witness protection program. This was this was all new at the time and of course nobody knew how it was going to turn out. As far as Relez goes, did they allow him as part of the deal to allow his family to keep some of the money, ill-gotten gains that he had and secondly, do you know what became of his family? Are there survivors now? Are there grandchildren, great-grandchildren now? And if so, how are they making out? Well, the background on Abrellez's family is is this. Um, after Abrellez agreed to help the prosecution, he was housed in this hotel that I mentioned, the Half Moon Hotel, which was a half-empty slightly decrepit hotel on the boardwalk in Coney Island. He was kept there with a half a dozen other informants in a suite that came to be known as the Rat Suite. 
And the police um, set up layers of protection there. They built a steel wall between the elevator and the rooms. They really kind of kept them in, in what was, it wasn't a jail, but it was sort of like a jail. And um, on the night that Abe Rellis was supposed to testify against his boss, Lepke Bookhalter, Rellis's wife came to visit him and she brought him a bottle of whiskey, as she always did. By her account, they had sex. And then after they had sex, she told him that she wanted a divorce. And he had reason to believe that she was seeing somebody else. And then the next day, Abe Rellis died. Less than a year later, his wife married this other man. She changed her kids' names to the new husband's last name. They moved to upstate New York and were really never heard from again. Um, later on, um, his, his wife did um, sit for uh, depositions and did, did talk to the district attorneys, but she very studiously erased any sign of, of Abe Rellis's role in her life. Can you write a book like this without imagining it on screen? While you're writing this, are you picturing it as a movie? And I don't mean, you know, as far as ambitions, but just in general. Can you write this kind of, it's so fascinating to me. Can you, as an author, actually sit down and write this without picturing it in your mind? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I'm glad you asked that. You know, I really did picture it visually the whole time. I mean, how could you not? It's such a cinematic story. It's New York in the 1930s, and the mobsters are wearing those, you know, those those double-breasted suits with the big collars, and they're driving these long hooded cars, and they're, you know, they're um, killing people down by the docks. I mean, it just it's really a visual story. And, and I've tried to tell it that way. I've really tried. Everything in this book is true. Every quote is real. But I've tr- really tried to write it as if it were a Netflix series. I've really tried to write it not as, you know, history with a capital H or a Wikipedia entry, but to really, to really write it like a novel or a Netflix show, because that's really, I think, what the story calls for. It's that dramatic. It is just listening. I'm riveted, and I'm sure others are as well. And I'm going to remind everyone once again, Michael Connell is our very special guest, and he is the author of several great books, but not the least of is his latest, A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder Incorporated. It is a must-get for everyone, as you can imagine. It is just absolutely wonderful, and is his focus is on Kid Twist, Abrellas, and that name alone. And you're talking about the double-breasted suits, old New York, or, or whatever you want to call it. It is a movie. It is a Netflix series, like you said. And I have to believe, I have to believe that this is something that would go over so big. You know, we've had, you know, recent success with all types of gangster films. I mean, this is a true story. And again, the story of Rellas really hasn't been focused on. You know, I know people have touched on it. I know if you go to Wikipedia and you look up murdering, you're going to find relatives. But how difficult was it for you to find background 
on him? And secondly, how hard was it to verify the background? Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, I did, I did um, requisition a good number of FBI files. Um, they weren't all that helpful. Um, of course, there's nobody to talk to, nobody to interview, because this is too long ago. Um, I relied on a lot of court documents, a lot of um, court transcripts, depositions, um, and old newspaper clips. Um, those were the days when New York City had 12 or 14 newspapers, and they all covered these mob killings the way, I don't know, the way ESPN covers football. Um, it was almost like a, almost like a sport. And so there was a lot of material there. Um, you, you know, um, the, in the, out in the, in the neighborhoods, the murders were so frequent that they, the newspapers almost at certain times almost didn't even pay attention because the, you know, the murders just were, were, were constant, hardly even constituted news after a while. But there was still a lot there to work with. What didn't you discover that you were hoping to find? And again, I know whoever it is that's writing a book, they like to, you know, close it out and finish it and it's over. But is there anything that sticks in your craw that you weren't able to discover that you were really trying? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had known more about Abe Rellis's personal life. I did mention his wife and his troubled relationship to his wife. But the homes of these gangsters was very, um, you know, it's just very beguiling. I mean, they were, these were, I mean, tough isn't even the right word. These were, these guys were vicious. And yet their, their home lives were very kind of ordinary and just domestic. Um, you know, they were often, uh, the worst killers were often the best fathers and the best husbands. And, um, I wish I knew more about that. That that part of it is is hard to get at. We know just from what you're telling us here how vicious Relez was. So by no means are we, you know, forgiving all his sins and putting him on a pedestal. But what was it that you found about Relez that was very impressive? What stands out to you more than anything about what he was about? Well, I mean, one thing that stands out to me, I touched on earlier, you know, if you, if you, when, when district attorneys met Relez, there's a wonderful quote from one of the district attorneys describing the day that, or the night that Relez walked into the district attorney's office for the first time. He had just decided to flip, to change teams. And the district attorney just described the, the way he radiated menace. When he walked in the room, you you know you just people people just recoiled. He was you could just feel the evil. You could just feel what a villain he was, and and yet what people didn't 
anticipate is that, you know, even though he was this thug, he had only gone to school until seventh grade. Um, he had a funny lisp. He had a weird way of talking. Um, and of course, he had an impossibly thick Brooklyn accent. And yet, despite all of that, he was kind of a genius. I mean, when he began to describe these murders to the district attorneys, he not only had almost total recall for murders that took place 10 years earlier, but he also understood what the lawyers needed, what the district attorneys needed. He understand all the legal ramifications of the murders. And um, he had been in and out of jail so many times that he had a kind of street knowledge of, of the legal part of all this. So I, you know, the one thing that really surprised me is what a kind of a kind of an evil genius he really was. Yeah, amazing. And uh, let me remind everyone, we have a couple moments left with Michael Cannell and the name of the book. And it is a must, must get for everyone. A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder Incorporated. Frank McKay here with Michael. The thoughts that come to my mind, for example, when I think of Frank Costello, is, you know, here's a guy that was desperately trying to fit into society. You know, like he liked going to parties where high society types were there and he was he was trying desperately to be sophisticated. When you think of Bugsy, you know, you think of intelligence and when you think of Capone, you think of, you know, just a brute, you know, to me, you know, just a guy that's brilliant in his brutality, but really a dope in so many ways. The idea of Rellas, just from what I'm getting from you, is, yeah, there's this genius there and there's this, this memory there, but he doesn't seem to be interested in going anywhere outside of his circle or outside of his status in life. Am I reading that wrong? Was he a gangster, just like a thug-type gangster that was happy with his, I shouldn't say his station in life, but uh, was happy with who he was? Yeah, that's another really good question. Some of these top mob guys, the mob lords, as some people call them, they, you know, uh, Lucky Luciano lived in a suite at the Waldorf Astoria, and many of these mobsters flew to Miami and um, lived the high life in Miami, or they might go to Hot Springs, Arkansas, which was a very popular resort for mobsters um, in those days. They were they were trying to be worldly. They had a, certainly had enough money to live a certain kind of life. But Abe Rellas and his men, they were not like that. They were Brooklyn guys, and they just stayed in Brooklyn. I mean, they were just, um, I mean, as I said earlier, they were just sort of ordinary family guys. And that's part of what is so strange about this story is that they were, they were committing all these murders and then they would just go kind of, you know, they would go, they would go home. They'd go to their neighborhood bar and they'd have dinner with their families. They were not aspiring to be glamorous, um, worldly successful businessmen the way people like uh, Bugsy Siegel were. In your mind, if there were an actor to play Abe Rellas, to play Kid Twist, and even somebody from the past or somebody currently, in your mind, who is it? Who do you see him as, as far as a character goes? That's another really great question. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to think about the mafia without thinking of uh, of Martin Scorsese, the the film director, 
And and if Martin Scorsese were to were to make this, I I uh, I, I don't mean to sound sound like he might, but if he were to, um, uh, you know, I think Joe Pesci is the actor who comes to mind. Yeah. Sort of a like a a short, tense, super tough guy. Listen, I'm not asking to tell any tales out of schools, but have you had conversations with, I don't mean Scorsese, but have you had conversations with filmmakers yet, or is it still too new? Is it still fresh? And by the way, we're in the middle of a pandemic as well, right? But have you had those conversations yet, or is that something you don't want to touch on yet? No, I'm happy to talk about it. I mean, I, I, I have had one or two you know, feelers, but nothing that really seems like it's um, the right thing yet. I, I uh, of course, I, I hope it happens. And I honest, honest to God, I really think this is, uh, you know, a truly cinematic story, an amazing American story that hasn't really fully been told yet. Listen, just the way you've spent these last 40 minutes or so explaining, I'm just fascinated, and I knew, and that's why I reached out to you guys, and I wanted to hear it for myself, and it's terrific. And again, everyone must get this book. It is called A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder Incorporated. Michael Cannell is here for another minute or two, and he is the author of that great book and the author of some other wonderful books. Michael, before you go, give us a rundown on what's next. Is your schedule fluid because of the pandemic? Are things set in stone? And what's on the agenda for the next year? Well, I'm actually working on another mafia book. I'm not going to say exactly what it is, but it's it, it's it's also set largely in in Brooklyn, also a true story, but it's it's in a later time period. It's more like the 70s and uh, and the 80s. And it's also, um, I guess we could call it an, a, another mafia story of betrayal. Can you give us a website, a social media site, and anywhere people could follow along with what you're doing and what's coming up next? Yeah, sure. Um, anybody who wants to converse with me or ask a question can reach me on Twitter. It's at Michael Cannell. That Canell is spelled C A N N E L L, Michael Canell. And also, I have a website, and that's uh, uh, michaelcanell.com. And the best place to get the book, I said Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I guess those are two of the obvious places. Anywhere you want to steer anybody specifically? I mean, there's a there's a, a new version of Amazon called Bookshop that people are people seem to be liking. I think it's good to support them, but really. Any outlet will have it, I hope. Michael, congratulations not only on this book, but on everything that you've done. You've put together an amazing career, still going strong, and the best is yet to come. Michael Cannell, thank you very much for being here. Hey, this has been great. I, I really appreciate it. Michael Cannell, everyone, has been our very special guest. Thrilled to have him, and I'll repeat it again. Sound like a broken record, but it's a must, a must read for everyone. A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder Incorporated. It focuses on Abe Relez, Kid Twist, and I hope this turns into a Netflix series or a limited series, and if the right guy, gal, gets a hold of this, certainly we'll be all over it. Michael Cannell is just an absolutely talented author, and he's been for so long, and he's former editor over at the New York Times, and his resume is a mile long and very impressive. But again, our focus has been on the book. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on 
Breaking It Down. This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays.